1: The oligarch behind the St. Petersburg troll farm is sanctioned, again. Recorded Future looks at disinformation and finds there's a functioning private sector market for it. The European Union seems likely to pursue technological sovereignty, at least to the tune of some R&D investment. Ransomware attacks against U.S. state and local governments have been trending up, and that trend is likely to continue. And NSA has its new cybersecurity directorate. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. The oligarch behind the internet research agency that worked its influence mischief from St. Petersburg has come under new sanctions imposed by the U.S. Treasury Department. Yevgeny Prigozin is variously described as a founder, financer, or owner of the troll farm, and he's a wealthy guy indeed. More on this later. We tend to think of disinformation as something states do, and indeed the word comes from a Russian word, desinformatsia. It was defined in the old Soviet encyclopedia, but the practice didn't fall out of use when Soviet power went the way of the dodo at the end of the Cold War. The Russian security organs have long been world leaders in the practice. But there are also purely criminal use cases for disinformation. As a recorded future study concludes... Much of it takes the form of garish and dishonest advertising and apple polishing, and there's enough demand to sustain a -a disinformation-as-a-service market. Bulk social media campaigns are prominent offerings. The gangs offer services that range from what most of us would call shady PR tactics, like placing stories in both legitimate and dodgy online outlets through creating social media campaigns crafted to avoid triggering the content controls networks have put in place to limit such activity. It would appear from Recorded Future's experiment that disinformation as a service is fast, affordable, and arguably effective. The researchers created a fictitious company, which their report calls the Tyrell Corporation, and then contacted two competing disinformation specialists in the Russian-speaking underground to pull together competing campaigns, one pro and the other anti-Tyrell. The salesmen of the two groups, which Recorded Future calls Raskolnikov and Dr. Shivago, were highly professional, patient, and apparently easy to work with. They also offered clear pricing, and they delivered on their end of the deal. Of the two, Dr. Zhivago was the more experienced and sophisticated, but both delivered the content with novelistic flair. Odiet amo, I hate and I love, said the old-time European poet, and the more things change, the more they stay the same, as another old European saying has it. An internal EU policy document from the European Commission's Directorate General for Communications Networks, Content and Technology has leaked and shows the EU as being of two minds with respect to foreign technology. It wants foreign technology and for foreign, here read Chinese and American, but it fears them as well. The leaked document recommends an urgent initiative for technological sovereignty, Bloomberg reports. An EU spokesman emailed Bloomberg to say simply, we don't comment on leaks, but the word on the street is that the 23-page document, itself a chapter in a larger briefing book, says, quote, Europe's position and influence in global markets will be eroded, affecting European leadership and jeopardizing our technological sovereignty in key industrial strategic value chains. End quote, it's thought to represent the thinking of Ursula von der Leyen, who assumes the presidency of the European Commission next month. Technological sovereignty was a major plank of President-elect von der Leyen's campaign, but she herself, of course, will not have the authority to mandate it by decree. That decree would have to come from the European Parliament, but the leaked proposal represents an influential line of thinking. Two companies particularly mentioned in dispatches are Apple and Huawei, and the prescription for making Europe great again is, for the most part, greater investment in R&D. Among the many observations on trends out today is one from Emsisoft. More than 600 government entities in the U.S., mostly state and local organizations, have been hit with ransomware this year, and Emsisoft thinks it's going to get worse. Politico grouses that legislators are either out of ideas or indisposed to act, and a HelpNet security op-ed argues for collective defense as local government's best option. Facebook can't seem to keep themselves out of the news these days, and most of the news about Facebook lately has, arguably, not been good for Facebook. But one of their initiatives to become a major player in online cryptocurrency has been flying a
2: bit under the radar. Our own Carol Terrio has this report. Facebook! despite being hammered on privacy and ethical issues for the last year or more seems to be foraging ahead with new digital adventures without hardly a limp in its step and one of these recent forays is facebook's new cryptocurrency called libra or libra the idea is that libra would launch in early 2020 and that libra would dramatically improve the way in which people send and receive money online well that is what facebook say at least So I invited Simon Rodway from Intersect to help us understand what Facebook is trying to do here and get him to look into the crystal ball and see what he thinks the impact will be on our financial lives. Simon, tell me, what do you think Facebook Libra is going to do? Is it going to rock the financial foundations as we know it? Well, it's a very interesting question to ask. Things are not always what they seem. And I think in
3: this particular case with with Facebook specifically and with the Libra project, it's sensible to look a little bit deeper than what is first perceived. Mm. All Libra is, is an aspirational vision. The vision of Libra is really to develop a safe, secure, and low-cost way for people to move money effectively. We've seen for such a long time that the remittance market, is a very expensive market for, if in effect, the poorer in our society, where people want to move money to send to their family, and they get they have to pay a hell of amount to do it. Um, the reality is what Libra is trying to do, in the way that it's been presented, is to try and address that particular gap. And I think with that in mind, I, I can only applaud it at this point whether it's successful is a different matter that there are a lot of reasons why that might not be the case libra is just one driver in this particular space there are others we can look at the likes of the 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 startup banks that we see who are also looking at cross-currency cross-border payments and saying okay we can do that better
2: okay so let's say i'm a target market for um something like facebook libra um what are the things i want to ask before i dive in um and start using it as a a currency
3: they always go to the place of fear this is change this is something different what should i be afraid of and and because it's got the facebook stamp on it obviously in 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 our mind we can think of various events that have taken place in recent months and years where we think, do we really wanna trust Facebook with all of this information? The reality is that we call this Facebook Libra, but it's not Facebook, not directly anyway. Facebook is one member in an association where the association will manage this network. Yes, Facebook were the conceiving body. They were the, the organization that put forward the developers that builds out the Libra framework. So the fear that we have, which is, do I really want to trust my personal identifiable information to an organization that has got a track record of not really looking after that well? A pretty justifiable fear, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, The the, the question then I would ask is, um, what information are they capturing? What information is Facebook themselves capturing? They won't get access to... The, the Libra network directly in that it's it's a node-based network. So there are a number of different parties that will play. And the, because it's based on blockchain, blockchain is an immutable structure. It can't be changed. It can't be tampered with. It can't be altered. Uh, therefore, mm. there's very little that, that Facebook themselves can actually do with that. Where Facebook will win and could win is when we talk about Calibra the wallet solution Mm -hmm. that will be delivered by Facebook. In actual fact, it's gonna be headed up by David Marcus, who will look to deliver a wallet solution for Libra, which people will then use. And typically their argument there is the 2.3 billion Facebook users they have will use a Calibra wallet, which will allow them to exchange Libra coin over the Libra network.
2: Right. And that is where there may be some security issues. That's yes. where you're seeing that. That's yes. the area you're thinking. Let's pay attention to that. And may
3: the question when needs to be asked.
2: Well, Simon Rodway, <laughs> you've, you've educated me today. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the show and making the time to speak with us. This was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire.
1: NSA has launched its new cybersecurity directorate today. Its first director, Ann Newberger, is quoted in the Washington Post as saying. The mission of the organization is to prevent and eradicate threats. Our focus is going to be on operationalizing intelligence. So welcome to the world, Cybersecurity Directorate, and may you get off to a good start. We return for a moment to the case of the sanctioned oligarch. As we mentioned earlier, he's been sanctioned before. What's left to sanction, one might wonder? The same question came up with recent new sanctions imposed on North Korea's Lazarus Group. At some point, aren't you just chasing your tail? Not necessarily, and if you look at the details of the sanctions, you can see the point. Yevgeny Prigozhin has indeed been sanctioned before, but this time his yachts and private jets are specifically named. He may find it difficult to ride them into non-Russian ports of call, Fifth Domain notes. No place to buy diesel, no landing rights, and so on. Thinking of dropping anchor and calling the harbormaster at Barcelona or Port Adriano? Well, perhaps it's no longer such a good idea. Or maybe you're in the Black Sea, say, Dropping Hook at Novorossiysk, Like it's not St. Tropez, but there's a wine tour open to the public, and maybe you could visit the monument to the sailors' wives, enjoy some oysters, things like that. Or maybe you're up in the White Sea, where you could take a peek at the Bielomorsk Museum of Local Lore. That's tough to beat. The point of this is not to make fun of Russian local attractions, and we Americans have no call to throw stones through our own glass house of roadside attractions, like the world's largest ball of string, or Ripley's Believe It or Not. The point is that owners of mega-yachts and private jets want to strut their stuff on a fashionable stage. Consider this. If you're bombing around the U.S. eastern seaboard in your nicely loaded Gulfstream, you want to be able to touch down at JFK and disport yourself on Park Avenue— Or maybe even land at Palm Beach International and then chill at Mar-a-Lago. You don't want to be confined to landing at Teterboro and hoping they've got some soft-shell crabs at Tracy's Nine Mile House on the Hackensack River. But Mr. Pergozin is now confined to the Eurasian equivalent of just that. We're fans of Teterboro and South Hackensack, but trust us, nice as they can be, they're not places you go to be seen on the red carpet. Maybe you think that's punishment enough but think further. Yachts and jets are standing temptations, specifically to pride, envy, and avarice. They can gnaw at you. Suppose the itch gets so great that you decide you've just got to sail your yacht into a nice place, maybe like the misleadingly named Mosquito Creek Marina on the Esplanade in North Vancouver. Step ashore incautiously and blammo, extradition, here we come. And that is why the feds aren't just chasing their tails. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe,
0: great to have you back. Dave, it's always great to be here.
1: Uh, had something brought to our attention. This is uh, thanks to the Swift on Security Twitter feed. Which is a great <laughs> Twitter account. Quite that, popular, yep, quite popular. I follow it. And uh, they pointed out that um, Microsoft has made some changes when it comes to Trusting the encryption on SSD drives. Right. Unpack this for us.
0: So uh, when you have BitLocker, when you enact it, uh, and the drive reported that it could encrypt the data itself, previously it looks like Microsoft would trust the drive and say, okay, we'll let you handle the encryption.
1: So the hard drive itself had the capability built in to encrypt the data on the hard drive. Right.
0: Well, Microsoft has found that's not always the case. That a lot of times there's quality issues with that. There's an article in here that uh, Swift on Security links to that points to Samsung devices.
1: Right, they had issues with firmware and and uh, I think hard coded passwords. Right, and, yeah, it, like was,
0: that. it was hard coded keys. I think was, okay was, was yep. what the yep. issue was. Yeah. Um, what's happening here is now Microsoft is saying, all right, manufacturers, uh, we just don't trust you anymore, and we want to keep our users safe, so we are going to use CPU based encryption to encrypt the data on the hard drive. Hmm. It's a shame that Microsoft has to do this, mm-hmm. but I think that Microsoft has to do this. Right? <laughs> right. Right. It should be the case rather that Microsoft doesn't have to do this. And that these drives actually properly encrypt the data so that when the data or is stolen by physically stealing a laptop, which mm-hmm. happens frequently. Yeah. Right. That that data is protected while it's at rest.
1: Right. Somebody can't take the hard drive out. Right. Hose it up to another machine and, and say, suck the data off yeah, of it.
0: Yeah, pull the data off of it.
1: Yep. Now, I suppose part of this is the uh, the CPUs themselves have gotten to the point where this isn't any sort of big impediment for them to be able to do a high level of encryption no, on the fly. It, it's not it, really going to slow things down anymore.
0: Right. And once, once they start using a uh, symmetric encryption algorithm, that's pretty fast. It's not. It's not a slow algorithm.
1: So really, they're just they're taking this out of the hands of the hard drive manufacturers, right. Saying, okay, we're not sure we can trust them, but you can trust us.
0: Correct. Well, we- I mean, we know <laughs> Microsoft is saying we know we can trust us. Right. Right.
1: Right. Um, should
0: we trust them? I think we can. I think Microsoft's doing a lot better job in security than they did say 15 years ago. Uh huh. I think they've really woken up and and smelled the coffee. I think they did that a long time ago. I say. Yeah. I should say. You know, it would be it would be better. To have this encryption at the hardware level. Mm. Right. To have and it would be faster and better all around. Mm-hmm. But if you can't be certain of the vendor's implementation of it, this is uh Microsoft doing what any good company would do. Mm. Microsoft, you gotta remember, they don't have the advantage that Apple has. They don't control any of the hardware right. on on the computers that run their operating system. Mm-hmm. So they have to do this. Mm-hmm. Apple can say that hard drive's not going into our computer, but Microsoft cannot say that.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point because uh, Apple has, I, I believe they call it the T2 chip, which uh, comes on some of their newer systems, That and one of its jobs is to take care of on-the-fly encryption.
0: Right. Is and, it a, a trusted platform module?
1: I believe so, Okay. Yeah. So like you say, but, but Apple knows they have the hardware and the software. Microsoft has to be able to run anywhere.
0: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big difference.
1: All right, well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms/fedcyber. That's aka.ms/fedcyber And that's the cyberwire.